Lord, we've prayed a long time uh, for the noise that we hear around us, Lord, for, uh, for you to continue to bring young children into this church. And so I just want to stop and, and say thank you for being faithful, Lord, uh, for, for keeping this church young. Lord, now as we come to meet with you again this morning, God, just in a different way, would you pour out your Holy Spirit? Lord, we have, we have prayed, we have sung, we have invited. Would you just continue to make your presence known to us, Lord? May the people that walk out of this church look very different from the people that walked in because we've been in the presence of our King. So just come and have your way this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have just finished up a series, we did a long series on marriage and then on parenting. Uh, and to be honest, I've missed like preaching during that time. We've had a lot of our panel discussions, which have been really good and helpful. Uh, but I am just thankful uh, that I get to come and just bring the word again. And so next week, we're going to be starting another uh, series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' uh, most famous teaching. Uh, but this week... I have one that is a story that God has just kept bringing up in my heart again. Uh, and so I want to share it with you this morning and just see what the Lord might do. But before I get to that story, I have to tell you another story. Uh, we're going to pick up in the middle of 2 Samuel in chapter 9, if you want to turn there. If not, the passages will be on the wall. Uh, but before we pick up in 2 Samuel halfway through, I have to kind of clue us all in on 1 Samuel. Uh, we have to kind of get the backstory so that we can all kind of start from the same place this morning. So I'm, I'm quickly going to, I'm hoping in less than five minutes to be able to share with you an entire book of the Bible. Sounds super simple, right? One of the main characters we'll be talking about is King David, and he never did anything very important, right? Like, yeah. So buckle up. We're going to move through this. But I want to share, it starts with the first king of Israel. Anyone remember, who was the first king of Israel? Saul. Saul. If you raise your hand, it's too slow, Mav. You just got to shout it out. Saul was the first king of Israel. There was a, a prophet named Samuel who, who God sent to anoint Saul king of Israel. Now, you have to understand this about Saul. Saul looked the part of a king. Saul, you ever heard the, the phrase, head and shoulders above the rest? That's actually a biblical term, and it was used to describe Saul. Literally standing in a line, he was at least head and shoulders above the next biggest person. So when, when the nation looked at Saul, they went, yeah, that's a king. But what the nation didn't understand was that Saul had an incredibly fearful heart. Saul was very anxious and fearful, and this led him into a lot of dangerous places. Actually, because of Saul's unfaithfulness, his unwillingness to depend on the Lord, to do things in the Lord's way at the Lord's time, God had told him that the kingdom he had wouldn't last, that it would actually be taken from him and given to another. You see, because Saul had a couple sons, one of which, his oldest son, who should have been the heir to his throne. Does anybody know Saul's first son's name? Jonathan. Jonathan was Saul's heir. When Saul died, when Saul passed the kingdom, it should have gone to Jonathan. But because of Saul's disobedience and his lack of faith, God said, it's not going to your son. It's going to go to another instead. And so God, once again, sends Samuel to anoint David as king. Now, Saul looked the part on the outside, but on the inside was gripped by fear and anxiety. David was the exact opposite. 
In fact, when, when David is anointed, it's where most of you have heard this passage before. It says that man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. Because Samuel, it's actually a funny story. David had seven older brothers, and they were all older and much bigger. And, and God tells Samuel, go to the house of Jesse, and there I'll show you who the king is going to be. And literally one after the other, all of David's older brothers walk past, and Samuel's going, it's got to be this guy. He's huge. Look at him. And God keeps going, nope, 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 seven times, till finally David comes before him. And, and Samuel, you can almost hear him laugh, and he's like, not this runt, though, right? And God says, this is the man that I have chosen. And so Samuel anoints David as king while Saul is still king. It's a little awkward. But David is a man of great faith, a young man of great faith. In fact, one day he's, he's traveling. His brothers are all serving in the army because, again, they're big, strong, and strapping. And David's been left back to wash the sheep. And one day his father says, hey, take some supplies out to the real men. And so David saddles up the donkeys, takes them out to where the army is, and he sees the entire army of Israel cowering in fear while this literal giant, nine and a half feet tall, named Goliath, stands up and challenges the entire army of God. David, being the man that he is, the smallest guy literally in the army, says, who does this guy think he is? And he goes and he confronts Goliath. It, beautiful stories. First uh, Samuel 16, and it's, you know, Goliath has an armor bearer to help carry all this heavy weaponry, and he's, he's a literal giant walking out there. David walks out with some rocks and says, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. Anybody know how to finish this? But I come against you in the name of the Lord. God's on my side. Who are you, Goliath? And so you see this tiny man with this incredible faith which is great for David, but things, again, get awkward because there is still a king in Israel, and his name is Saul. And he starts to hear people singing literal songs that they've written about how awesome David is, and he starts to get jealous. And he starts to get fearful. What if this David guy takes what's mine? And so he tries multiple times to kill David. David, at this point in time, is his son-in-law. He is Jonathan's best friend, Jonathan, the one who should be heir to the kingdom, actually befriends David and at one point vows to serve him as king. Going, hey, everything that should come to me, I recognize that God is giving it to you and I'm on board. And he gives him his robe and he does all of this ceremonial stuff that says, you're gonna be king and not me. Man, the story of Jonathan, I have prayed for years that my children would have Jonathans in their lives. <laughs> that my children would be Jonathans. First Samuel, got to read it, I'm telling you. But eventually, because of Saul's lack of faith and his disobedience, the Lord brings the Philistines, the neighboring warring nation, against the Israelites. The Israelites, because of Saul's leadership, have turned to idolatry and witchcraft and all kinds of stuff. And so the Lord says, I'm going to bring the Philistines to discipline you and to teach you a lesson. And so the Philistines come and they war against Israel. And in this large battle, Saul and Jonathan are both killed on the same day. So as you can imagine, the nation is now in chaos. The king and the heir to the king have died. What do we do? And so the nation actually splits into two. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. 
And so the northern kingdom goes, let's stick with Saul, who's his next oldest son. And so they put his next oldest son in line as king. The southern kingdom goes, we recognize David as king. Obvious, we, he's been anointed. It's obvious that he is God's man. So they start serving David and the northern kingdom, Saul's family. And so all of these border disputes and wars start to break out between the two of them until finally the northern kingdom actually betrays Saul's son. They kill him and they bring David in to be king. It's super clean and this is what you expect from the Bible, right? Just love and peace everywhere. They betray Saul's son and they bring David in and so now the nation is whole again. David is king over northern Israel and southern Israel. There is one king and he consolidates his power. If you've never read the story of David, it's worth a glance. Sometimes you kind of hear him painted as kind of a vanilla character. You know, David was just always good all the time. He, he is complex. He had ups and he had downs. And it's worth a look. But so now we find ourselves in 2 Samuel chapter 9. David has gone through all of this and now he's consolidated his power. He's king over all of Israel. And one day when sitting on his throne, chapter 9 verse 1, it says this. David asked, is there anyone remaining from Saul's family? Why would a king go searching for survivors from the previous king's family? It was actually a super common thing. When a king would come into power, he would go, hey, is there anybody left from the other king's family? Why would he do that? You eliminate all threats to your throne. And, and here's the thing. They actually saw it as the way to bring peace. Because they saw what happened when the nation was divided and it was Israelite killing Israelite. And so this was just the way that the world worked at the time. A king would come into power and he would go round up everyone who could call themselves king instead of me and they would kill them. And so David, sitting on his throne, says, is there anyone remaining of Saul's family? Everyone in the room went, oh no. It was a matter of time. We thought maybe David would be different, but it was a matter of time. But thankfully, David is different. The entire verse goes like this. David asked, is there anyone remaining of Saul's family that I can show kindness to because of Jonathan? I mean, the servants literally have been like, um, sorry, my Lord, I don't think I heard you right. You, you want to bless someone that's a threat to your throne? You want to show kindness to an enemy? Like, I'm, I'm sorry, my Lord, what? But is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show kindness to because of my love for my brother Dave, or Jonathan, excuse me. So in verse two, there was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. Pleasantries out of the way. So the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, there is still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. The king asked him, where is he? Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodabar at the house of Makur and the son of Amiel. I'm going to pause right there. Sometimes you have to read like Old Testament names and you don't know how they're supposed to be. Just say it confidently and everyone will assume you know what you're talking about. I have no idea if that's how you pronounce these names. They're dead. They're not going to correct us. So if you're in this place, don't stutter, don't stumble, just go and everyone will go, that's how you say it. So King David had him brought from the house of Makur and the son of Amiel in Lodabar. 
why wouldn't David have known that Jonathan's son still lived? Jonathan was his best friend. He would have known he had a son, right? You, you know if your best friend has a kid, yeah? Yeah. They didn't have Facebook, but word still got around. Why wouldn't David have known that Jonathan's son still lived? The son isn't illegitimate, but hey, kingdoms were weird back then, and so yeah, maybe it was one that they kind of kept quiet. That's not the case here, but that, that's a good guess. The family chef criminal, therefore, I will ask you not to jump ahead, sir. <laughs> Did I say the name of Phibosheth? No. Okay, so we'll find out here in a little bit that there's a couple different reasons why Mephibosheth could have just been culturally seen as like not even worth remembering, okay? But there's, I think there's an even bigger reason. Why wouldn't David have known? He was in hiding. He, no, he was in somebody else's house, in the house of Makur, son of Amiel, in this backwater town because he lived his life in hiding. He would have thought, like everybody else, if the king finds out where I'm at, if I ever get called before the king, I'm a dead man. Because that's what kings do. My, I'm a threat to him, and so my life is in danger. Someone hide me. And so for years, he was in hiding because he knew if I go before the king, I'm a dead man. We find earlier Mephibosheth is his name, and he's mentioned over in 2 Samuel 4. It says, Saul's son Jonathan had a son whose feet were crippled. He was five years old when the report about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. The one who had nursed him picked him up and fled, but as she was hurrying to flee, he fell and became lame. His name was Mephibosheth. Like, do you hear the fear there? Saul and Jonathan are dead. Everyone in Saul's household thought, we don't know who's going to be king next, but we got to get out of Dodge. Because honestly, even if it's Uncle Ishbosheth, I'm in danger because I could be a rival to the king. And so everyone in Saul's house fled as soon as they heard the news. This is just the way the world worked at the time. And so Mephibosheth, as they were fleeing, was dropped and became crippled in his legs. And so now we fast forward. Mephibosheth is a young man. And it says, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David bowed down to the ground and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied, literally down to the ground. He was terrified. He knew he deserved death. He, he's preparing to grovel for his life. I'll, I'll kiss your feet, king, whatever it is, just please don't kill me. But David responds, don't be afraid. Since I intend to show you kindness because of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all of your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you take interest in a dead dog like me? Like, is this a trick? I had to be helped even into the room. You should want to kill me. And yet you have just given me everything that I would have inherited from my grandfather. Everything that was King Saul's is now Mephibosheth's. And on top of that, 
David says, you know what, I'll, I'll even one-up it. You will always eat at the king's table. You will dine with me for the rest of your life. I've just made you one of the richest men in all of Israel and now one of the most powerful because you will sit and dine with me every single day. Mephibosheth's head would have just been spinning. I, I thought that I, that I had come here to stand in your presence and that that would be the end of me. I came here expecting death because that's what I deserve, but instead you give me an inheritance and you invite me in? His head would have been spinning. Then the king summoned Saul's attendant Ziba and said to him, I have given to your master's grandson all that belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him. And you are to bring in the crops so that your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, is always to eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all that my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. He was given more than he ever deserved. He deserved punishment and death, yet he received grace and blessing. Some of you see where I'm going with this. But why does it end by reminding us that his feet had been injured? Every, you, you almost can't read something about Mephibosheth without the author reminding you he was crippled, his feet were injured, he, he, he was lame in his legs. Why do they keep reminding us of this detail? It kind of feels mean, to be a little honest, right? Why do they keep bringing this up? Okay. Okay. Part of it is you can see yourself in it because, hey, we're, none of us is perfect. We, we all bring some baggage, you know, to the table. Like, okay. Okay, so he, he would have been a social outcast. I, honestly, I'm sure earlier when he said, when he called himself a dead dog, you know, he said, why would the king even notice it? I'm sure other people had told him that. You're like a dead dog. You know, like that probably is something he heard his whole life and he was parroting back. Anthony? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is completely by grace that Mephibosheth is receiving anything. Again, what he deserved, death. Plain and simple. But grace was poured out on him. And, and it keeps mentioning his feet because back then, if you were lame, if you were crippled, what kind of job could you have? None. He, he was given fields. Could he work fields? He couldn't. So, so the king even said, hey, I'm going to give you servants and they're going to work the fields for you and bring the food in. I think they want us to really 
be clear on the fact that Sheth brought nothing to the table. That's right, I'm calling him Sheth now. It's too much. He brought nothing to the table. There was nothing that he could go, King, I am so grateful. Here, let me do this for you. Let me provide this for you. He brought nothing to the table. He was invited to eat at the king's table at the king's expense and had no way to repay him. He was simply a drain on the king's resources by all worldly perspective, but he was invited to dine at the king's table because the king delighted in him. Instead of having to grovel for his life, instead of being threatened, beaten, killed, he receives grace. That word grace means undeserved favor. He is essentially adopted by David. I'm going to treat you like I treat all my sons. You will have a king's inheritance. You will eat with me and my family. You will sit between my sons. He was adopted into the king's family. He receives forgiveness and blessing. Sheth didn't deserve this kindness, but it was poured out on him anyway because the king delighted to do it. He was the king's enemy and received blessing. Many of you see the communion table up here and you're, you're already connecting some of the dots, the parallels. This is the story of communion. We were the king's enemies. And yet even in our rebellion, when we deserved punishment and death, the king poured out grace, blessing, favor, forgiveness. Romans 5.8, Paul says this, but God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, in the midst of our sin, caught in the act, Christ died for us. Much more than since we have been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from wrath. For if while we were sinners, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? We did nothing to earn it. Ephesians 2 that Anthony brought up earlier, for it is by grace you have been saved. This is not of works. We have nothing to puff out our chests and boast about. We did nothing to earn it. We bring nothing to the table. But the king has poured out his grace on us. We heard this passage last week when Dan was teaching on adoption from Ephesians 1. Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. If we could ever get our heads around that. <laughs> For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself, according to his favor and will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. We have redemption in him through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. That word lavished there, Dan touched on it last week, literally to pour out more than you can handle. His grace has been lavished on us. We have been adopted in according to his favor and will, which meant this. He was looking forward to it and made a plan for it. 
for us to be adopted in. It wasn't some accident that God fell into. He couldn't wait for the day that we would be adopted in. And he could pour out on us more grace than we could ever hope to understand. So here today, we get to come to the king's table. We get to come and dine with the king. It seems weird. It's a little piece of bread and and a little thing of juice, and we call it a feast. For those who are spiritually hungry, there is more to be had at this table than any meal you're going to eat after the service. We've been invited to the king's table at the king's expense to feast with him as his children. We did nothing to earn it, and we can do nothing to repay it, and that's exactly the way the king likes it. So I'm going to invite the music team to come up. We're going to sing a song called Underdressed, and over the last year, this story has continued to come to mind, because every time I hear this song, I think of the story of Mephibosheth, and how it beautifully parallels our relationship with Jesus. And so we're going to take a moment, as we always do, just to kind of reflect and allow the Lord to examine our hearts before we come to the communion table. And then we're going to sing this song, and I invite you to come as we sing this song and partake of communion. And then, as my good friend Paul Harvey would say, we'll hear the rest of the story. But let's take a moment right now and just allow the Lord to examine our hearts before we come to the communion table. You hear this every time we do communion. Many of you could get up here and share this yourselves. Paul warns us not to take communion in an unworthy manner. And that unworthy doesn't mean that you have sinned today or this week or this month, therefore you're disqualified. Unworthy is to say, there's this sin in my heart that that God has put his finger on and going, we gotta deal with this and I'm holding back from him. I can't say thank you for dealing with my sin and I'm gonna hold on to this sin at the same time. That's hypocrisy and God will not be mocked. And so we always want to take time and go, Lord, is there anything I'm holding back from you? And if he puts his finger on something, if you feel conviction from the Holy Spirit, now in your seat, just ask him for forgiveness. Repent, which means I was walking this way, now I'm walking this way. Lord, I was holding on to my sin, but I let it go and I walk towards you. And then come and take communion together. Does that make sense, church? So let's take a moment just where we are and allow the Lord to just examine our hearts. So can you see how I would get from that song to Mephibosheth? Any takers? Okay. So that's the story of David's kindness to Mephibosheth, a foreshadowing of the Lord's kindness and mercy to us. But let's take a look at Sheth's response. The, The story doesn't end here. There's more to this relationship with Mephibosheth and David. I said before that David wasn't just some vanilla character, you know, some goody two-shoes. He had ups and he's downs. How many of you have heard of David and Bathsheba? That was one of the next stories. It actually happens in the next chapter. David commits adultery with another man's wife, and to try to cover the whole thing up, has the husband murdered. Not a good day in the king's life. The Lord is not blind. The Lord sends the prophet Nathan to say, I know what you have done. Your God sees you and sees what you have done. And and David is broken 
and repents of his sin and, and cries out to the Lord. But the Lord says, because of what you've done as king of Israel, your kingdom isn't going to be what it was meant to be. And the kingdom begins to fracture underneath him. David's sons begin to rise up and fight one another, even killing one another, until finally one son rises up named Absalom who says, I will be king instead of my father David. And he begins to, to raise up this following behind him to the point where David, once this man of incredible faith who stared down a giant literally twice as tall as him with a few stones... Now his own son is coming to Jerusalem and David flees. He, he gets everything he can together and he and his followers flee. Absalom coming in one gate, David and his men fleeing out the other side. And we pick it up here as David is on the run from his son Absalom in 2 Samuel 16. When David had gone a little beyond the summit, Ziba, remember him, Mephibosheth's servant, was right there to meet him. He had a pair of saddled donkeys loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 bunches of summer fruit, and a skin of wine. The king said to Ziba, why do you have these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride, and the, the bread and summer fruit are for the young men to eat, and the wine is for those to drink who become uh, extremely exhausted in the desert. Old Sheth coming through, right? The king is now turned and run. Now the king is in need. And who shows up but Mephibosheth's servant with donkeys to ride and food and, and, and drinks to help restore strength to the men. Way to go, Sheth, right? I think you guys see where this is going. Where is your master's grandson, the king asked. Why, he's staying in Jerusalem, Zeba replied to the king. For he said, today the house of Israel will restore my grandfather's kingdom to me. The king said to Ziba, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. I bow before you, Ziba said. May you look favorably on me, my lord the king. It appears that old Sheth has abused the king's grace. Now that the king is no longer of use to him, Mephibosheth says, today's my day. Today is the day that I get everything that was coming to me. Not just the fields of my grandfather Saul, but the kingdom of my grandfather Saul. And so he stays back. He withholds his help from the king. And the king takes everything that he had given to Mephibosheth and now gives it to his servant Ziba. Then I'll cut him off. If he's going to stand against me, he loses everything. So the story continues over the next few chapters. Eventually, David's army defeats Absalom, his son. And as David is then making the long journey back toward Jerusalem, there's about a whole chapter of then so-and-so came out to meet him, and so-and-so came out, and like, hey, we were here for you the whole time. We, we were voting for you, not that guy anyway. And so they're just coming out of the woodworks to congratulate and to praise David. And it says, Shemaiah, son of Gera, a Benjaminite from Behurim, again, just make up the names and be confident, hurried down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men from Benjamin with him. Ziba, an attendant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and 20 servants, also rushed down to the Jordan ahead of the king. They forded the Jordan to bring the king's household across and do whatever the king desired. So Ziba comes down. 
and brings the king across the river. And he's a part of this big entourage bringing back the king. But you know there's a twist coming, right? If you watch reality TV shows or daytime, I don't understand it. Read your Bible. There is drama and intrigue. Because this would be where you cut to commercial break, but they show that little clip where it's like, "Uh uh-oh. Like, just a few verses later, Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down to meet the king. Things just got awkward. Ziba shows up going, man, I'm here for you, king. And down comes Mephibosheth. Like, people were waiting for drama to happen here. But he had not taken care of his feet or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king asked him, Mephibosheth, why didn't you come with me? My lord the king, he replied, my servant Ziba betrayed me. Actually, your servant said, I'll saddle the donkey for myself so that I may ride it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. I I, I couldn't just walk after you, king. But Ziba slandered your servant to the Lord my king. Ziba took my donkey. And then he told you that I stayed back for selfish reasons. But I've been your man the whole time. David's in a bit of an awkward spot right now. Because I already gave everything that's yours to him. And now you say he's lying. And this is a tough one. Ziba slandered your servant to my lord the king. But the lord the king, or my lord the king is like the angel of God. So do whatever you think best. For my grandfather's entire family deserves death from my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. So what further right do I have to keep on making appeals to the king? I lay myself completely at your feet. Every day since the first day we met has been a gift from you anyway. And so if you decide to call in the chips now, okay. I place myself at the feet of the king. You do what you think is best. You can hear it. I trust you. You're my king. I trust you. And so the king, stuck in the middle of this, he said, he said, who do I trust He goes, okay, fine. The the king said to him, why keep on speaking about these matters of yours? I hereby declare that you and Ziba are to divide the land. Later, David's son Solomon, the, the wisest man to ever live, one of the most famous stories is a lady comes and says, hey, this is my baby. And another lady comes behind her and says, no, that's my baby. She took it. And they go back and forth. And Solomon goes, I don't know whose baby this is. So he has this great idea. Let's cut the baby in half. And you can each have half. The lady who, whose baby it wasn't said, that sounds great. The real mother said, no, 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 it's okay. She can take them. Just don't, don't touch the baby. I think Solomon learned this from somewhere. David says, okay, fine. We'll cut the inheritance in half. I'm not going to get into who's right, who's wrong. You can just both have half. There are some signs in the story that point to Mephibosheth is actually telling the truth. Ziba was selfish, saw his time to strike, and took it. Wanted the land and the everything for himself and for his sons. It's important when they, when they talk about Mephibosheth's unkempt appearance. He showed up to the king and he hadn't washed his clothes. 
he hadn't trimmed his mustache, he hadn't taken care of his feet, whatever that meant with these crippled feet. He hadn't done any of that from the day the king left. It was a really common thing in Israel. You've probably read some other passages where it says they like they tore their clothes and they put ash on their forehead. They had these outward ways of saying, here's what's going on in my heart. They didn't really hide their emotions. And so from the day the king left, Mephibosheth was walking around in occupied territory, obviously in mourning because David had been run out. He was dirty. He was unkept. He probably smelled bad hobbling around whatever it looked like because he was mourning the fact that his king had been kicked out. You see in him, he didn't defend himself, but he came and simply said, my king, I trust you. I place myself at your feet. Do whatever you think it's best. If, it, if you think it's best to kill me now, do it. I trust you. But his next words tell us everything that we need to know. So the king says, just cut it in half. You get half, you get half. But Mephibosheth said to the king, instead, since my lord the king has come to his palace safely, let Ziba take it all. He can have it. I don't care. If you're here, I'm good. You are all that I need or want. As I read this, I always ask, what would my response have been? I probably would have fought Zeba, first of all. Come on, man. Do you know how many fields that is? Like, I would have defended myself. I would have gone, no, 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 King, you don't understand. It all should be mine. I didn't do anything wrong. He slandered me. He's accused me. He's a wicked man. Don't give him anything. I would have demanded justice. But instead, Sheth says, I don't care about that at all. If I can still be with you, he can have everything. We have been invited to eat at the king's table. As undeserving and underdressed as we are, how would you have responded in Sheth's position? You've been slandered. Things have been taken from you. Life has gotten really difficult. And you're not getting justice, not as you see it. How would you have responded? Because listen, you have an accuser. You have someone who stands before the king and slanders you day and night. His name is Satan, the accuser of the saints. He brings accusation to our father. He sits and chirps in our own ear and accuses us. And it's unjust and it's not right and it's hard. How do you respond? Again, I can't stand up here and go, I'm like Sheth every time. You know what? They can have it, my king. As long as I got you, they can have it all. I wish that that was my response. I hope that that becomes my response and I'm, I'm working toward that. But if I'm honest, I defend. I demand my rights. I go on the offensive. Mephibosheth was so overwhelmed with the grace and the kindness of his king, nothing else mattered. So I ask that question, how would you respond
we all have difficulties. We all have different things. And if in your heart you know that wouldn't be my response, I wouldn't just trust in the Lord's kindness. I wouldn't trust for him to continue to provide for me the rest of my days. I would seek to, to figure it out myself. I would justify, I would defend. If that's you, I'm going to call us to a time of repentance this morning. We're going to have a time of prayer as we sing a closing song. And as you meditate on that and just ask, Lord, how would I respond? If it's anything other than he can take it all, as long as I have you, then I'm going to call us to repentance. To say, Lord, I'm sorry. I would defend myself. I would provide for myself. I would figure it out myself. But I want to be dependent on you. I want to trust in you. I want to lay myself at the feet of my king and say, you do whatever you think is best. I trust you. Anything short of that, and listen, this is hard, is sin. We are called to be completely reliant on the king, to be completely trusting in the king. And I don't say sin is some like whip to hit us with and make us feel guilty, but it's selfishness, it's pride, it's arrogance. And we're called to repent of those things and instead to place our trust fully in our king. He can have it all, I don't care. As long as my Lord the king is with me, I have everything I could ever need or want. So I'm going to invite the music team up again. And as we sing this next song, you can respond right where you're sitting. Sometimes it's helpful to put some feet to it. And so if you want to come up here and just pray before the Lord, you are welcome to do that. We'll also have a couple of elders available over here on the side that you can come and ask for prayer about this. Or if you need healing, if you have something in your life that you need prayer for, our elders are here and available for you. So take these next few minutes and just respond however the Lord leads you.